My wife Sue and I moved to Oregon in 1994, and prior to that, I worked at a managed care organization called Group Health Cooperative at Puget Sound. I was a clinical director there. That's located, I worked in a little clinic in a federal way that's located between Seattle and Tacoma. And I remember a conversation I had with a psychiatrist at the Federal Way Clinic who told me that if he could work his will that he would crop dust the entire Pacific Northwest with Prozac. <laughs> Prozac is a medication used to treat depression. And his point was that he was getting writer's cramp from writing so many prescriptions all day and if we could just kind of do it once and have it done with that it would spare him his hands. To be sure, antidepressant medications have become so prolific in our society that they're showing up in our water supply. I can leave it to your imagination to how that works. The World Health Organization predicted that by the year 2020, that depression, clinical depression, would become the second largest cause of disability for adults in the planet. accounting for 15% of the uh, total disease burden. The, U the University of California at Los Angeles conducts annual surveys of incoming freshman students. And in recent surveys, they've determined that 25% of women and 26% of men are clinically depressed when they come to their school. These are 18-year-olds. The rise in suicide among millennials gives evidence to the, to the rising scourge of depression and particularly with the use of opiates and alcohol. So what is depression? Well, we have a slide here, first slide. Um, according to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, DSM, for mental disorders, a kind of, it's a kind of Bible for people who work in mental health. Depression is a cluster of oftentimes conflicting symptoms. It's either too much sleep or not enough or too much weight or not enough. Uh, feelings of worthlessness and just generally being sad. It's been called an emotional storm in the brain. I've had the opportunity, I've had conversations with people who are affected by this. And the capacity oftentimes in its deepest effect is the ability to distinguish truth from error, to distinguish what is fiction versus my own, or what is true fact versus my own imagination becomes difficult to distinguish in the throes of depression. What causes depression? Well, it's related to oftentimes what's happening in a person's life. When bad things happen, you lose your job, you lose a relationship, you miss a goal, people feel sad, and that can lead to depression. The distinction is that everybody gets sad, and at times, most of us are depressed for a period of time. But what's uh, often the challenge is that none of these things, the loss of friends or bad, sad things that happen, are necessarily a predictor of depression. A lot of people experience these things and never get depressed. Be sad for a while, but don't get depressed. Others struggle with depression all their lives without any uh, particular event happening in their life to cause it. 
So there's something, there's a variety of things going on, not just life events. Other people have said, well, it's part of the makeup of the brain, and that's true. We'll get into that this morning. Recent medical dogma has been that depression is caused by a lack of serotonin in the brain, and so medications that are given to people for depression include a balancing of serotonin. Dr. Elisha Perkins was a practicing physician in Norwich, Connecticut during the ascendance of the Enlightenment period. And in 1799, he patented a device that he claimed was a cure for all kinds of pain. The device was a thick metal rod, looked something like this, and he called it the tractor. The tractor had special healing qualities, he said, and uh, sadly they couldn't explain to you, the promoters couldn't explain what those were, but in serious tone they would say just as lightning draws, the uh, lightning rod draws lightning out of the sky, the tractor will draw your pain and your disease from your body and dispel it into the air without ever touching your body. Traditional medical practitioners at the time, such as Dr. Jane, John Haygarth, were appalled at this teaching. Everything that they learned in medical school at the time said that the notion that pain could be dispelled in the air was nonsense, it was silly. Yet the results were unmistakable. People with long-standing degenerative arthritis were bounding out of their bed and walking. People with chronic pain were reporting that their pain had disappeared after a brief treatment with the tractor. How can you not believe what you see with your own eyes? Dr. Haygarth was challenged. The evidence is there for everyone to see. Only a fool would deny the legitimate power, the healing therapy and power of the tractor, at least for a while. On January 7, 1799, Dr. Haygarth conducted an experiment with a hospital, at the hospital where he worked where he got a piece of wood and wrapped it in a piece of metal and picked five patients in this hospital who were suffering from pain of some type. And he conducted an experiment. He, waved it, he gave them the same speech. He waved it over their bodies. And of the five people, four of them reported that their symptoms got better. And three of them, remarkably so. He, he, uh, Dr. Haygarth wrote his uh, findings down on a piece of paper and a letter and sent it to colleagues in Europe and in America, and they repeated the, the study all over the world and got very similar results. This study with these fake tractors um, became known or led to the, the study of what has since become known as placebo effect. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And if we believe that a therapy or a pill or some type of treatment is going to make us better, there's a very strong possibility that it will, at least for a while. Since that time, any experimentation that involves people and reporting symptoms has included what's called placebo effect where you have an experimental group here and a control group here, and the control group gets the sugar pill, and you, they both get better with whatever treatment you're doing. And so the difference between the placebo effect and the results with the experimental group is actually shown to be, well, this pill uh, gets better when you remove placebo effect. It's very extraordinary. 
I am not a psychiatrist, nor the son of a psychiatrist or a psychologist. I don't presume to advocate for anything different that a person might be receiving in terms of medical therapy from a physician for depression. I can appreciate that this subject is very personal, deeply personal, for some people in a room this size. Depression is prolific. But I would like to suggest to you some things, some principles that have been revealed in Scripture and recently validated by hard science as a means for ameliorating the, and, and minimizing the symptoms of depression. I'd like to share with you. Number one in your notes, Christians are not immune from depression. Christians get depressed just like everybody else. In the um, passage, in the, um, the when you notes, I've listed um, some 30 chapters of psalms that are called the psalms of lamentation. In the psalms, there are uh, lamentation psalms individually and lamentation psalms corporately. And each of them follows a certain pattern. That when um, a person is sad, typically King David will appeal to God for his uh, pain. Here's one in Psalm 10. Why, Lord, do you stand off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts about the cravings in his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Or consider uh, Psalm 6, I am worn out from my groaning all night long. I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. Do you suppose King David, who wrote this psalm, might have qualified under the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders to be depressed? It would seem likely. Or this lament from the Apostle Paul in Second uh, Corinthians, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. We were afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Life is hard. People get emotionally beaten up. Reacting emotionally to life's challenges is neither abnormal nor unspiritual. Christians are not exempt to that. The psalmist set the example for an honest expression of how they felt, and many times those emotions were directed to God himself. Number two, in your notes, there are several factors that contribute to depression. For most of the 20th century, the debate among people who study such things was that depression was either physical, a problem with the mind, or that it was a result of bad experiences. And most people were content to split the difference between the two. Well, there's probably elements of both. But between 1978 and 1999, there were a team of scientists led by a couple guys named George Brown and Tyrrell Harris who defined categories of things that tended to either contribute to or diminish the symptoms of depression. The first category they called difficulties. Difficulties are things like having a chronic health problem or a bad marriage or a boring job or no job at all. Difficulties are the things that tend to contribute to, to 
to depression. And when you add to that a, a crisis, a catastrophe, the death or divorce of somebody important to you, that can, trip, that can trigger people into a depression. The problem was it's not an absolute predictor because some people go through those experiences and don't get depression at all. Then on the other side, they said their <coughs> difficulties are contrasted by the researchers with another category called stabilizers. And stabilizers are strong friendships and relationships with people, a positive mental uh, perspective. And this is where the research overlaps with the scriptures. And so this is what I'd like to share with you in the balance of the time this morning. Number three in your notes, people who are emotionally healthy have a strong sense of purpose. Have a strong sense of purpose. What's your purpose? What were you put on the earth to do? Do you know? Do you ever think about it? If you don't think about it, you're in great post of company because most people don't give it a lot of thought. The Bible gives us some helpful suggestions. Consider Ecclesiastes 12, 13. King Solomon has written the book of Ecclesiastes. And in this book, he depicts all of these great achievements that he's done in the cities he's built and the pleasures that he's experienced, the wisdom that he's gained, all these great achievements. And he, he summarizes it's all vanity and chasing after the wind. He goes through all this and gets kind of a depressing read um, <clears throat> if you read it all at once. But toward the end of the book, the last the second to the last verse of the entire book, he says, here then, the, con the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. If you're looking for a purpose, a statement of purpose for your life, that's a good one. Be a good one to pick. Here's another. In uh, Matthew 6.33, Jesus is talking about what people worry about, materialism, clothes and food and shelter, and he, he makes the allegory of the grass of the field and the birds of the air. And he concludes with this passage in six, uh, verse 33. He said, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. It will be taken care of. That's a good purpose statement. Write that one down on your refrigerator. Jesus, later in Luke 10, 27, Jesus is having a conversation with a lawyer and they're having a conversation about the first and greatest commandment. And they agree that the greatest commandment is thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Another excellent purpose statement. Good one to embrace. Before leaving the planet, Jesus gives a great commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel baptizing them uh, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you. That's another great purpose statement. One of, probably one of my favorites is one that kind of batches these all together. And it was put together by a group of um, theologians in England about 25 years after the pilgrims landed in Plymouth Rock here in, in this country. And it's called the Westminster Catechism. And in the summary, they said, the chief end of man is to know God and to enjoy him forever. It depicts a sense of intimacy with God and fellowship that I like. That's a great purpose statement. So what does all this have to do with being depressed? 
The Bible teaches that our purpose is to glorify God, and we know from experience that God can be glorified by negative experiences, by bad experiences, and particularly so. It depends on how we respond. It depends on how we react. This church publishes a prayer letter every week. At the end of the service, you'll be getting a card. You'll be asked to write a prayer request if you like. And those are compiled and distributed to prayer warriors in the church. And, uh, and I get a copy of that on my computer every week. And what I've come to conclude about this prayer letter is that it's sort of a microcosm of the human experience. You have everything from the routine and mundane that people want prayer about to great personal catastrophic crisis right here in our church. It's a sobering thing to consider. But when I pray through those prayer requests, I have learned from experience not just to pray for the request, the job, or the relationship, or the the health matter, but I pray that that person will will glorify God through the experience. Because that's the whole point. That's the whole point. Number four in your notes, people who are emotionally healthy control what they think about. Control what they think about. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Philippians 4, 8. Romans 12, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Proverbs 23, 7, for as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. In 1990, President George Bush the Elder commissioned the decade between 1990 and 1999 as the decade of the brain. And one of the amazing technologies that came out from this focused period in our medical history is the development of a technology called positron emission tomography, or PET scanning. PET scanning uh, can, um, using nuclear materials injected into a person's body, can extract the parts of the brain that consume oxygen. Brain survives on oxygen and sugar. And when you're using different parts of your brain, then the, that part will light up on an image. I think we have, a, we have an example of an image here. And the red, the more uh, the, the software uh, in that technology uses colors to kind of indicate uh, oxygen consumption. And the more closely to red the color is, that would indicate that there's a more concentrated utilization of oxygen in the brain. So we can see when people are thinking about something, what part of the brain is being used. It's amazing. They did research with PET scanning on memory. And they put people, uh, gave people an assignment to memorize something obscure. In our case, it might be a book from numbers. How many pots and how many kettles, what tribe brought to the temple. And so you memorize this and then you put it under a PET scan and they say, okay, recite this verse and it will, it will demonstrate, it will reveal, not unlike this picture, that a recent memory is scattered in different parts of the brain. 
and it will go to different file cabinets to pull out different pieces of the memory to recite that obscure verse. By contrast, if you're asked to, memor to recite a love song from your high school days or a fav favorite vacation memory from your childhood, it will go to a single place in your brain and light up with red color. It suggests to us that our brain retrieves and stores information differently between long-term and short-term memory. It has implications for rehabilitation from stroke. If you have a, a stroke, it's a damage to part of the brain. And if you damage a part of the brain and, you, and you've forgotten how to dress or how to walk or how to eat, then we can, through stroke rehabilitation, we can reteach the brain to do those essential life functions using the healthy parts of the brain that have not been damaged. It's amazing. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. There's been significant research with PET scanners in the subject of depression. And you, when a person is feeling depressed and they're thinking uh, thoughts about sadness, there are parts of the brains associated with sadness and with flight or fight response part of the response that, that feeds into our anxiety. And they'll light up like a Christmas tree when a person is thinking about a subject which causes them to be depressed. So it begs the question, am I depressed because of my brain? Or is it, am I depressed because of what, how I use it? Take, for instance, if we take an x-ray of my arm, and it's flabby and, and weak, and... Uh, and then we, can, we could conclude either, well, that's because um, he doesn't exercise or because he was just born that way. He's just born weak and flabby. So then I go to the gym for six weeks and I exercise, I lift weights, I do push-ups and pull-ups, come back and take another x-ray uh, of my arm and it will be different. And we would rightly conclude, well, it's not so much genetics, it's because of how I use that arm. Similar... Um, dynamic is also true with the brain. I'm going to introduce a word you've probably never heard before. It's called neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is a word that comes from research during the decade of the brain, and it's the notion that the brain is constantly repairing and mending and changing based upon how we use it. When a person suffers a stroke, the parts of the brain are damaged, then new parts of the brain take over to re replace that function. Neuroplasticity is brought about by redirecting our thinking, in the case of depression, from those thoughts that are harmful and depressing to those thoughts that are uplifting, positive, virtuous, and praiseworthy. Let's go back to Psalm 6. We read, I am worn out from my groaning all night Long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of my foes. Away from me, all you do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish, and they will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. The psalmist acknowledges his pain. He gives vent to his grief, but he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. 
He gives praise to God. He acknowledges the truth and the, and the greatness of God in his life. And that's what stops him from descending into despair. The reality and the truth of God in my life who will ultimately prevail on this earth. The Apostle Paul were here today. I suspect. I wonder if he might not rewrite Romans 12 too in light of what we knew about neuroplasticity. I wonder if he might beseech us to redirect our thinking and employ the effects of neuroplasticity not only to be transformed by the renewing of our mind physically, but also or spiritually, but also physically. Number five in your notes. People who are emotionally healthy forgive people. People who are emotionally healthy forgive people. Ours is a one another faith. Love one another, serve one another, be kind to one another. And most of the time Christians hear these admonitions and we agree. Yes, that seems reasonable. It becomes more difficult when we talk about forgiveness. Many of us are dealing with hurts that have been uh, inflicted from years past from our childhood. It makes it difficult to let go. Matthew 6, 14 says, If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sin, your Father will not forgive your sins. Fairly stark, dogmatic. It becomes relevant to today's subject because a bitter, unforgiving spirit is a chief driver in depression. I speak from personal experience here. My unwillingness to forgive others affects my relationship with my friends and with my family and with my God. Years ago, I was doing a management training seminar for a bank. A group of executives were meeting in a room, and we were learning how to be better leaders. And I brought up the subject of, of forgiveness. I said, you ought to practice forgiveness. Keep short accounts with each other because it helps to maintain the trust within the group, and that's a key part of leadership. And during a break, I was approached by the technology executive in this group of leaders who described the hurt that he had experienced in childhood from a family member. He says, I know that this hurt is affecting my relationship with my peers. I know that it makes me less effective in my job, but I just can't give it up. The hurt is so great and the pain is so deep that to forgive this person would be to to diminish the validity of my pain, would be to diminish the scope of the hurt that was perpetrated on me. My initial response to him was, I don't think you can let it go in your own power. You're not stupid. If you could have forgiven this person, you would have done it long ago. I don't think you're capable in your own power. He was intrigued by that. That conversation led to a series of conversations in my living room where he ultimately placed his faith in Jesus Christ. As did his wife. They are serving God today. Number um, six in your notes. People who are emotionally healthy pursue a relationship with God. Pursue a relationship with God in Ephesians 5, 18 to 21, is a crucial passage for Christians struggling with depression. And be not drunk with wine, it says, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. 
giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Here's the antidote to depression from the scripture. My friends, it is not possible to be depressed and worship God. We cannot at the same time be depressed and grateful. It is physically impossible. We cannot at the same time be depressed and humble and minister to others because depression by its nature is inwardly focused. Several years ago, my brother David was diagnosed with a brain tumor. I have a picture of him. Here he's in a building rafters in a building in Sierra Leone where my, our daughter Emily lives today. He was diagnosed with a brain tumor. It's the same tumor that killed our dad. David underwent a type of brain surgery in San Francisco that was made possible by research conducted during the decade of the brain. He was awake and conscious during the procedure and he, uh, they would put electrodes on different parts of his brain. And they would put a picture in front of him, a chair or a cat or a house, and ask him to identify the picture. And if he could identify the picture, they would do one thing with his surgery. And if he couldn't identify it, they would do something else. And by that process, that procedure, they removed the tumor from his brain. One of the jokes at the time was that when they put a picture of a car, he not only told them that it was a car, but he also gave them make, model, and year. David was a car buff. Before the surgery, he gave his phone to one of the attendants in the operating room and said, take pictures of it, would you, during the procedure. After his recovery from the surgery, if he went to coffee with my brother David, he would likely pull out his phone and say, hey, you want to see pictures of my brain? That tumor took David's life on June 4th, 2016. I recall several conversations with he and my other brothers in the last year of his life, all of them significant, all of them profound. David had had a falling out with our dad in his 20s that lasted two decades, damaged the trust in the relationship between he and our dad during that time. He had challenges in business. He had challenges in his marriage. He had challenges with his kids and with friends who forsook him and cheated him. But through it all, he was able to restore fellowship with our dad. He was able to restore, to hold short accounts, to forgive, and to restore fellowship to the extent that it was possible to him personally. And so as we were talking about his disease and the fact that it would take him soon, he would describe things that he regretted about not seeing his grandchildren grow up and get married or that he there were things in his life that he had yet wanted to do but they were not there was not the despair of a depressed individual it was not the despair of an angry old man by God's grace he had been spared of that David as much as anyone I know had reason had cause had legitimate reason to be depressed and yet, even through this, his last words were filled with hope and with praise and with gratitude to God. At his funeral, his family asked me to sing 
one of his favorite songs. It was recorded by Robin Mark. It was one of David's favorite songs. The words in part go like this, when it's all been said and done, there's just one thing that matters. Did I do my best to live for truth? Did I live my life for you? The secret to beating depression is the secret to knowing our purpose in life. The secret to beating depression is managing what we devote our thoughts to. The secret to beating depression is forgiving people. The secret to beating depression is serving other people and pursuing God, a relationship with God in all his glory. We're grateful, Lord, for today. We thank you for the, uh, those folks who are here today. We thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit to each of us. We thank you for the words of your gospel, what Peter said, thou hast words of life. And so I just pray now that as we are dismissed, that you would continue to minister to us throughout the day and that you would help us to glorify you in all that we do, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.